the Jodcast. Beware the Jodcast of March. With David Alt, Jen Gupta and Tim O'Brien. The Jodcast. March 2010 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm David Alt. And I'm Jen Gupta. In the show this time, we put your questions to Tim O'Brien and we round up the feedback we've had from you guys since the last show. But first, we have a very rare interview that Mr David Alt himself has done. He talked to Dr Robert Dunn about black hole X-ray binaries. With me on the line is Dr Robert Dunn, who is the Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at the University of Munich. And Robert, you have done quite a lot of work with uh, X-ray astronomy and supermassive black holes. So do you want to just take us through some of your early research? In terms of my studies of supermassive black holes their ef- and their effect on their surroundings, I've looked at clusters of galaxies. Now, clusters of galaxies are some of the, well, they are the most l- massive object in our universe at the moment. They're so massive, in fact, that they are only still, they're still forming. They haven't had time to collapse to their final state since the Big Bang. Because they are so massive, rather than only seeing the galaxies, the stars, and what we usually associate with what you can see when you look up into the sky, there are all kinds of things present in a cluster which are not normally visible. And in this case, what I'm interested in, or what I use, is something called the intracluster medium. It is a very, very hot, but a te- uh, but very, very tenuous gas, a plasma, and it's so hot, in fact, that it emits X-rays. And this gas bathes all the galaxies, so that when you look at a cluster of galaxies with an X-ray telescope rather than a normal optical telescope, what you see is an amorphous blob of stuff, rather than all the individual galaxies looking all pretty as spirals or ellipticals. This amorphous blob of gas is quite good because it exists throughout the cluster. It allows us to study the cluster as a single object rather than to study it as a collection of individuals. So we can look at the cluster as a whole, as a single object. Because this gas is sufficiently hot, um, it's around 10 million degrees or so, Celsius or Kelvin makes no difference, it emits x-rays. It's it's sufficiently thermally warm that instead of emitting red light or infrared light, it's emitting all the way up into the x-ray band. And this is why when studying this gas, we use an x-ray telescope which has to be in space because our atmosphere does, the Earth's atmosphere does very well at blocking all the x-ray light. We've got this nice amorphous blob of gas and we can see it in a cluster. And now I have to change tack and explain a bit about black holes and then I'll see how the two interact. At the centre of a cluster of galaxies, you tend to have, or very often you have, a single overly massive galaxy. It's bigger than a standard normal elliptical galaxy, and they even have a special name for it, the the brightest cluster galaxy, or even a central cluster galaxy. And at the centre of most galaxies, as we now know, including our own, there is a supermassive black hole sitting there. Yeah, Millions of solar masses or billions of solar masses. Some of these black holes are... They're, they're, they're swallowing material, they're eating, they're feeding, they are what we call accreting. Material from their surroundings is falling onto them and being swallowed from our universe rather. However, by some mechanism which, you know, it's still being discussed exactly how it works, not all the material that ends up falling towards the black hole is actually swallowed by it. What happens is that somehow this, some of this material is ejected from the black hole 
what we assume is along the axis of rotation of the black hole. And these, these jets of material travel extremely fast. They are, they are relativistic. They are traveling at a very large fraction of the speed of light. And of course, these things now zoom out from the center of the galaxy and out into space. If they don't interact with anything, they head off for, for, for thousands or millions of light years out from the galaxy and out from the region of the black hole. What, of course, happens is that if you have one of these jet-emitting supermassive black holes, these are also called active galactic nuclei, because the nucleus of the galaxy, the black hole, is active. It's emitting these jets of material. If you put one of these in the center of a cluster of galaxies, these jets are going to interact with that hot X-ray gas I mentioned earlier. Now, this interaction is quite useful, because we can see both the jet itself, which emits in radio waves, and we can see the stuff it's interacting with, the hot X-ray emitting gas. And what we find is that the interaction actually works in a very peculiar way. The, the jet basically inflates a bubble. Because I suppose there, there's not very much more heating you can do to a, a 10 million degree load of gas. Well, is there? There, there is some heating you can do. And, and thank you for reminding me. I, 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 that, that, is a, that is something I want to come on to in a minute. But basically, the, the jets themselves consist of, of, a, of a mixture of electrons either then positrons or protons. We're not sure, actually, what the positive part of the, the plasma is in that case, but also magnetic fields. And this makes this um, radio-emitting plasma quite connected. It doesn't like mixing very well. When you blow this jet into this hot thermal plasma, the radio plasma all stays nicely connected, and you end up forming what is basically a bubble. So and it's a bit you, like you, injecting you, you, some engine oil into a glass of water? In a similar sort of idea, yes, yes. You know, the two fluids don't mix or don't mix very well anyway. So the, the jet pushes this, this hot X-ray gas aside and fills the replacing cavity with the radio gas. And therefore it's quite useful. You look at the radio image, you look at the X-ray image, and what you find is there's a, there's a dark patch in the X-ray image where you've pushed all the gas out of the way, and you've got a bright patch in the radio image. And if you can make everyone then go cross-eyed at this point, you find that <laughs> the radio bright patch lines up with the X-ray dark patch. But that's then quite useful in terms of studying how much energy is coming out of this, this black hole. We know these jets are travelling at around you know, basically the speed of light. They can't go faster, but they're not much less. But we don't know how much energy this jet is carrying. Having created a bubble, a cavity, you can use actually very, very simple arguments from basic thermodynamics. So, you know, things, if you, if you do end up studying physics or, or engineering in university, things you'll study in sort of the first or second year. So, fairly simple for, um, concepts to get an estimate on how much energy is being carried by this jet in order that it inflates this bubble. And this is mm. quite useful. It's, one of the first, it's the first time we've actually been able to see, firstly, that black holes have a mechanical effect. They're not just bright in terms of the, the light they're emitting. They're also emitting a large amount of, of, of pushing power into mm. this central, central regions of these clusters. And that's, that is quite useful because, as, as, you, as you said, this, this gas... Although it is at 10 million degrees, you can't do much at heating it. You know, it's, it's already fairly hot. The mm. problem is that because we see it in the X-rays, we therefore know that this thing, this gas, is cooling. It's emitting radiation. You tend to find if you put something hot somewhere, it'll emit infrared radiation until it cools. In this case, you've got a 10 million degree gas that's emitting X-ray radiation because it's hot, and therefore because it's losing energy via these X-rays, it is also going to be cooling. And if you have gas cooling, it'll cool all the way down until it will land on the central galaxy where it can form stars. So this gas cools. Cooler gas can't exert as much pressure. I mean, think about it. When you, when you, when you boil a kettle, the, the hot vapor, the steam, 
what we see as steam, escapes the kettle because it's not being confined by the atmosphere. So if you heat something up, the pressure goes up. Mm-hmm. But therefore, if you cool it down, its pressure goes down. And therefore, all this gas cools, the pressure goes down, and it all flows towards this central galaxy, okay. where you'd expect to see it form stars. The problem is that when we've looked, when astronomers have looked, they don't see any of the stars. They don't see, well, they, they don't see sufficient stars being formed, and they don't see any, enough of this cool gas. They see it at 10 million degrees, but as it cools, you'd expect it to see it at 5 million degrees and at 1 million degrees and all the temperatures that you go down. And we don't see it in this cool between 1 and 10 million degree portion. So therefore, this energy injected by this supermassive black hole could be a way of preventing this gas from cooling and therefore ending up with all these phenomena that you'd expect but don't see. So the the black hole is is still radiating enough that it keeps the plasma outside warm warmed still to the 10 million degrees or because you said we, we couldn't find it in the 1 to 10 million degree category the, the, so. the, the, the problem is that to be honest we don't know quite you've got this jet that's carrying large amounts of mechanical energy because it's you know it's moving fast it's got kinetic energy mm, mm-hmm. and we know that the gas isn't cooling because we don't see the cool gas. We see the hot gas, but we don't see the cool gas. And also mm-hmm. what we find is we tend to see these jets and these bubble structures in clusters where you would expect the gas to be cooling extremely rapidly. What you do is you look at your cluster and you say, okay, this gas should be cooling. I, don't s- I can see it in the x-rays, the gas should be cooling. I look in lower temperature x-rays where I should see this cool gas, but I don't see any of the lower temperature x-rays. I look at the, how many stars this galaxy is forming, and I don't see that many stars being formed. Therefore, Mm. something is preventing this gas from cooling. What you also then find is you find this supermassive black hole at the center that's injecting energy into its surroundings. And it turns out that, you know, the amount of energy that you expect to, that that is being lost by the gas by emitting x-rays is about the same, give or take a factor of 10, as the energy that this supermassive black hole is injecting via this jet. And so what is a quite nice um, con- uh, sort of picture you could have is there's, a f- there's some sort of feedback loop going on. So you have a cluster, the gas cools a bit. Some of the gas does cool all the way down to the center of the galaxy where the black hole can interact with it, it can swallow some of it, but also some of it goes back out into the cluster and does the heating. And therefore you prevent some of the gas from cooling, but you sort of have a nice steady state where some of the gas cools, forms, falls on the black hole, but that then prevents most of the other gas from cooling by injecting this jet. It, it, it's a very nice conceptual picture. It, it works very well. The problem is all, with all the details still need to be worked out. You, you basically inflate a, uh, what you could look at as a balloon of this, this radio-emitting plasma, but how do you transfer the energy from one plasma to the other? over a lo- you know, Especially the, you, when they're not actually mixing very well. They, it, certainly for, for the first sort of 10 million years or so, they do not, or even you know, 100 million years, they certainly do not mix very well over... Mm-hmm. Sufficiently long time scales, of course, they will somehow mix. Because, of course, the cluster itself, is, you know, the, the picture I've described works very well if you have a cluster that is very stable, very static, all spherically symmetric, and everything's falling in along the yes. radius. <laughs> the moment you have something which is in real space, you tend to have, as, as these clusters form from this, this cosmic web that has formed after the Big Bang, so these filaments and voids all come together. And the yes, cluster tends to get... To- get fed down some of these filaments and there's a whole, sort of all kinds of motions of the gas as well it all gets a little bit more complicated i was going to ask how um the fact that 
these clusters of galaxies haven't finished their evolution, uh, how this will be affected then as the clusters continue to evolve and to, to go to their final state. Well, so, so, so what we tend to find is that if the clusters are sufficiently still living, yeah, still evolving, they're still merging, yeah, you've got a class, two clusters that are merging, there's lots of motions of the gas and things of that sort. That sort of motion, the collision of gas particles as clusters collide and things of that sort, those are also very good at keeping energy into the uh, surrounding area, into the, the cluster itself. But the moment the clusters sort of become a bit more sedate in its middle age, let's say, then you end up with a comparatively nice spherical or elliptic setup. And then this, this process seems to be more common. In terms of the future evolution, it, it, it's one of those things that if this, this feedback scenario is what is going on, then if you do end up with almost a steady state, at least steady state over a long time scale, because what could happen, of course, is that a load of the gas cools, it all flows inwards, the black hole does an almighty ejection of stuff, which prevents all the gas from cooling for a long time, and you end up with a very short active period and a long cooling period. But over time, this steady state could mean that it, it just continues in this sort of steady state feedback loop um, driven scenario. So if I can then move on to what you've uh, been researching currently, you kept your work with uh, black holes and x-rays, but you're now looking at binary systems. Yes, yes, I, I sort of, I, it's one of those things where, where not, not quite from one day to the next, but certainly between one, one job and another, I, 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 I changed um, mass scale by a factor of a, over a million, um, <laughs> which is, which not is many quite people fun. people can say that. Yes. Um, so, so yes, what I'm, although I'm still working on these, these, these bubbles and clusters and also on galaxy scale levels, I'm also now working on X-ray binaries. Now, it's it's a term that's very descriptive. It's a binary star system that emits X-rays. But in more detail, what is going on, at least in the ones that I'm studying, is that initially there were there was a, a binary system of two stars, one more massive than the other. More massive stars evolve more quickly. They go through their life cycle very rapidly. And if they're sufficiently massive at the end of their life, they will explode in a supernova. And if we're lucky, they will form a black hole. And these mm. black holes that are left have, all, have a mass of around 10 times the mass of our sun. The other star, if it survives all this, remains in the binary system. And when you suddenly have a, a black hole and a companion star, when, especially when the companion star itself starts swelling towards the end of its life, forming either a red giant or, the, or that sort of idea, you can end up with mass from the still intact star being transferred onto the black hole. The black hole is almost the, it's still the more massive partner in the system. So you end up with the material falling onto the black hole and forming an accretion disk. And... It's a bit like water going around the plug hole in the bath, where the the stuff closer towards the plug hole, plug hole closer towards the black hole, is orbiting, swirling faster than the stuff on the outside. And because each different circular region is travelling slightly faster or slower than the one next to it, you end up with basically frictional heating between the different parts of the disk. Yeah, if you if you rub your hands together, they get hot. Well, if you if you rub gas together outside of a black hole, it gets very hot and emits X-rays. And therefore, if we look at the X-ray emission from these X-ray binaries, we can study what's going on very close in towards the black hole, um, which mm. is quite nice because you want to study exactly how the material behaves right close to the center. Um, and if you're lucky, you can you can start getting effects from general relativity because of the the bending of the space-time by the black hole itself. In fact, when X-ray astronomy came of age, you now it's been 19, 1950s, 1960s, one of the first sources that was seen 
outside of our own solar system, pure by pure serendipity, was one of these X-ray binary systems. I think it was one in, in one which a, a neutron star is the, the more massive companion rather than the black hole. It, it kick-started sort of the next 50 years of X-ray astronomy quite, quite effectively. If you, if you have your mental image of a, an X-ray binary, you've got a black hole, you've got a disk, and you've got a, a, the donor star next to it supplying this disk of material. And then you look mm. at your active galactic nucleus where you've got, okay, a black hole that's a million times bigger or a billion times bigger, also with the disk. All that's different between the two is that one has a donor star and one is, you know, a million to a billion times larger. Possibly if you look at one type of black hole that's active, an X-ray binary, you may find out things about the other type of black hole, a supermassive black hole at the centre of a galaxy or even a cluster of galaxies, as I talked about earlier. The advantage of doing this is that Black holes which have got, let's say, a billion times the mass of our sun, they're quite lumbering beasts. They don't change very much over the lifetime of either a, a PhD student or even a, a, a full academic career. Yeah, and even, I think, if, if, if I submitted a, an observing proposal to one of the, the X-ray satellites, Dear NASA, I would like to observe this supermassive black hole for the next 50 years <laughs> Please give me all of your satellite time for that time. I'm fairly certain I would get, get be laughed out of the room. But what we can do is, of course, we can look at the X-ray binaries. They are smaller, and they actually vary incredibly rapidly and by large amounts. What we find is that these X-ray binaries, they um, undergo what are called outbursts. Basically, if you just look in the sky with your X-ray, X-ray goggles on and you look at one of these X-ray binaries, over the course of a few years, you will see that the brightness, its brightness will change by factors of almost a thousand, if not larger. So it'll rise in brightness by a factor of a thousand, stay quite bright for a few months, six months or so, and then fade back down to dim level. If we can work out what's happening there, it's quite possible that some of the X-ray, uh, the AG, these um, supermassive black holes, these active galactic nuclei, also undergo outbursts or are permanently in a position somewhere in this outburst. Their setup is very similar to a certain position in these outbursts. So they're, you know, they're not, all, not all of them are very quiet, not all of them are very loud. They're just halfway through and they seem to have just stuck somewhere. So, is, is, so the mechanism behind these outbursts, is it something to do with the, with the ongoing accretion from the donor stars? Or yes, so, so don't we know? What we think is going on is that these disks are, you know, they, they are stable to some extent, but sometimes there will be an instability that forms in a disk. You've got something that's orbiting incredibly fast, it's incredibly hot, and you've got an inter- gravitational interaction between the donor star and the black hole and the gravitational field of the two combined as well. The thought is that if you have sort of too much material in the disk, it's got to go somewhere and suddenly it all channels down towards the black hole or just some uh, some form of instability develops that means that the material suddenly loses its its ability to stay in orbit and all channels down to the center but what you if you look at the spectrum of these x-ray binaries you find there's there's almost two components on earth we're used to seeing things that emit light usually are hot yeah, a candle flame, a red hot poker. They may emit in the emit in the infrared, but if they emit light, they're usually warm, and therefore they have this characteristic so-called black body spectrum. It mm. may not be entirely correct. There's a black body, but it's near enough. This it's very thermal spectrum that emits over a quite broad range of of colours. Mm. And the X-ray emitting disc also has a thermal sort of spectrum. There, the second spectral component is so-called a, a it's a non-thermal spectrum, i.e., something that doesn't have this shape. For example, um, the, the synchrotron emission, the radio emission I talked about in the, the supermassive black holes from the jets, that is an example of a non-thermal emission. 
it's it's a very very different shape across frequencies. You tend to find that all colours either emit at the same brightness, or um, you find that there's more emitted than red, but it's a very slow graduation down towards the blue. If you look, could look at it with a multicolour eye, for example, you, you would be able to tell that one is a thermal emission and one is a non-thermal emission. Yeah, because the black body spectrum, as I remember from my own studies, that's a very particular shape and it relates temperature to uh, effectively colour or frequency yes. of light. Right. Yeah, you, you tend to find that the, 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 the place where most of the, the light is emitted is linked to the temperature of the material that's doing it. Whereas gotcha. in a, a non-thermal emission spectrum, there is no thermal procedure behind it. You can have, um, it tends to be um, interactions with magnetic fields and things of that sort that can cause a non-thermal spectrum. Getting back to the X-ray binaries, the, the interplay between these two spectral components also changes as you go through this outburst. What you find is that in quiescence, you tend to find this this thermal, this, this non-thermal, this power law spectrum dominates the emission. And it's from some sort of interaction between very hot electrons and magnetic fields above the disk is the current thought, or at least one of the current models. During the outburst, as this, as the whole emission from the binary as a whole rises, you suddenly find that the disk becomes very, very bright and dominates the emission. And in this transition from a from a, ther- a, a, a non-thermal, a power law dominated spectrum to a disk dominated spectrum, this occurs almost at the, the, the brightest at the brightest point of the outburst itself. And certainly you getting back to the link between the X-ray binaries and the, the supermassive black holes. Some supermassive black holes are very, very strong disks, and some of them have less strong disks. And so this interplay between the two spectral components is also something which, if we look at lots of X-ray binaries, which handily vary quite rapidly, and there's quite a few of them out and about, we can see whether, possibly learn things about how the, the, the supermassive black holes should behave, and then we can try and see whether they are out there. The advantage with X-ray binaries is because they're all in our own galaxy is that they're nice and close and therefore comparatively bright. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they vary over the course of a few months as opposed to over many, many years. Because of 50 years, yes. Or more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Robert, and we wish you all the very best for your ongoing research. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for that, Dave. And now we get on to the part of the show where we round up all the little bits that can't go in the show anywhere else. Dave, what have you got for us? <laughs> well, we've been doing our Jodcast videos again. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we went out to the Museum of Science and Industry where there was an exhibition about the Chinese space program. And this should be done and uploaded to YouTube hopefully fairly soon. Yeah, hopefully by the time the show goes out, it will be up online. Um, we've realised how much effort it takes to edit video, how much more time it takes up than audio. So some lovely people at Salford University are hopefully going to be making some Jogcast videos for us so that we can pass on the labour to someone else. Uh, and other things uh, in the video world, um, Wonders of the Solar System has started on BBC One. Yeah, this is something, a, a new programme with University of Manchester's Professor Brian Cox mm-hmm. going, he seems to be going all over the world to explain the solar system to us. I've yeah. only caught the first half an hour of the first show, but it looks pretty good. I'm not quite sure why he needed to go to the South Pole, I think, and the rainforest, It's because India. of the, the, the various different places in the solar system <laughs> can be mirrored here I'm on just Earth. jealous. I know you We are. don't get to go there with Jogcast video. I know. Or even with Jogcast audio. No. <laughs> <laughs> we get to see the inside of my hard drive with all of the, uh, the sound effects that I have. But well, we are going to the National Astronomy Meeting this up is in true. Glasgow. This Stuart and I will be there in April. Yeah. 
and someone else who has been all over the world and knows a lot. Here to answer your questions is Dr. Tim O'Brien. The first question this month is from Russ Jenkins, and he writes, I was wondering if you had any advice for potential blind amateur astronomers. How hard would it be to get into radio astronomy? Have you heard of a NASA-related radio telescope kit? I would love to listen to the stars and planets, and if I can do this with my wife, who is blind, it would be wonderful. Thanks for any help you can give. Well, Russ, um, that's obviously it's a very interesting question, actually. You mentioned a NASA-related radio telescope kit, and there is indeed a, a project called Radio Jove. That's J-O-V-E for Jupiter, Radio Jove. Uh, and you can find it on the web. We'll put the link on our website. Um, but it's basically a kit, and you can buy various versions of the kit online. Um, costs about rough, roughly $200, um, depending on exactly what you get, whether you put together some of the elements of the receiver yourself or whether you buy one ready-made. It's quite a, an arrangement, to be honest. It's uh, basically two antennas, dipole antennas, so they're sort of stretched wires, and you have to set it up on a frame. Now, the, the amount of space that you need to get this uh, kit to work is a space of about 30 foot by 45 foot. So it's a space in a you know a fairly large back garden um, that you'd need and about 10 foot high. So you've got to have these reasonably extended aerials. Um, now what this, the, what the kit is set up to do is to, is to pick up, um, pretty low frequency. So around a few tens of megahertz, low frequency radio emissions, um, from both the sun and Jupiter. Now the sorts of things you can hear, the, the website for Radio Jove gives, uh, gives a few examples of the sorts of things you can pick up with that. Um, but basically you hear sort of storms, if you like, solar storms. So it's basically charged particles in the magnetic field of the sun. And when there's a, when there's an outburst, you hear the sort of noise level, um, rise. But you're largely talking about, uh, the live sound you're hearing is a sort of hiss, you know, a sort of sound whose level is changing depending on what sort of solar activity there is. And then from Jupiter, um, it's a similar sort of thing. It's, uh, basically it will sound like a, a hiss, sometimes with little pops and crackles in, which are again little sort of almost like little flashes of uh, these radio waves coming from um, charged particles flying around the magnetic field of Jupiter. They're quite interesting, you know, listen to at um, just in real time, you hear this sort of pop, pop sort of crackling noises. Um, when you slow them down, uh, then you hear these sort of whistling sounds, much like you can hear in the Earth's ionosphere. So it's it's quite an interesting project, and there's lots of examples of things you can do with the signals that you're receiving and you record on the receiver. Lots of other people working with the same kit that you can sort of share share results with. But it is quite you know it's a quite technical project. Largely, what you're listening to live is sort of crackles and hisses and static type noises. Now you may have heard you mentioned listening to um, the stars and planets. Well. You may have heard sort of recordings of star sounds before. In fact, you may have heard them on the Jodcast. We've actually talked ourselves about these things uh, in the past. And the August 2008 Jodcast, we had a special um, on sounds from space. So I encourage you to go and listen to that in our archive. But those sounds that you're hearing there are actually not things that you would hear live with any sort of instrument like one of those radio telescopes. They come from that. There's various ways of, of of making those sounds, but they're basically derived from 
the vibrations of the star itself. So there's sort of different motions that would occur in a star's atmosphere. Convection, you know, the energy source in, it comes from within the star, deep within the star. And there's different ways in which that energy makes its way out to the surface. But towards the outer layers of a, of a sun-like star, the main mechanism that transfers the energy is convection. So you're heating um, the inner parts of the star and then the hot gas in the outer atmosphere of the star rises. And then as it rises, it cools and falls back down again. So you get this sort of boiling motion. So you've got these convective cells rising and falling all the time. Um, and it's possible to um, to image these to actually measure the speeds at which these cells are rising and falling using a Doppler technique, using a Doppler shift. Um, and there's an instrument on board SOHO, for example, the satellite observing the sun called the, the Michelson Doppler imager, from which sounds have been made. But they're basically derived from, you know, there's a processing um, that goes on with the data before it is turned into a sound. Quite excitingly, an area of, of, of astronomy called Asteroseismology or helioseismology, if it applies to the sun, astero, if it applies to stars in general, is to look at the vibrations of stars caused by sound waves largely moving through the body of the star. And actually, when you sort of, you could take out the sort of Doppler motions due to the, the convection process, you find that the stars actually uh, vibrating and, and typically, um, the periods of these vibrations are about five minutes. That's the sort of dominant um, mode there is in the vibration of the sun and and that sort of almost a little pulsation with a period of, of roughly five minutes causes a change in temperature of the sun which results in a change in brightness so in fact what's done is to monitor the brightness of the of the star over a period of time and what you're looking for are these regular changes in brightness the dominant period of which is five minutes and so you then just turn those changes in brightness in, into a sound. So you just scale that. So, you know, so if it's brighter, it would be a louder sound or uh, fainter, it would be a quieter sound. And then the, the, the different frequencies of change, the different periods with which the brightness changes lead to different frequencies in the, in the audio spectrum that you hear. So, of course, you know, a period of five minutes uh, would lead to a very, very low frequency, which would be completely inaudible. So the sounds that you hear when they're turned into sounds have been speeded up, speeded up by a huge factor, factors of over 200,000 times faster than the actual changes that you, in fact, see from the brightness changes. So that's sort of 18 octaves, 2 to the power 18, increasing frequency in order to get it into the audible range. So in fact, you know, that isn't really feasible to sort of point a telescope and listen to a sound from a star because these things were never originally sounds anyway. They're just translated from brightness changes. Plus there's all this sort of speeding up that has to be done as well to get it into sound anything like the interesting sort of sounds we hear. If you go up, listen to the, uh, to the, to the podcast we did back in, back in 2008. Now, just just reading around the subject on this, I just came across, I don't know whether you've come across this or not, but there's a very interesting series of books by someone called Noreen Grice, uh, who works in the in the States, and she's produced a series of Braille books on astronomy where she's basically taken astronomical images, produced a book with these sort of, for example, lovely Hubble Space Telescope images, and then each of the pictures has a has a a plastic overlay, a transparent plastic overlay, which you can put over the picture, and that is... On that, on the transparent overlay, you can actually feel the picture effectively. So there's a representation of the picture underneath that you can feel, um, together with uh, braille text that describes the uh, various features that you can feel in the image. So that looks 
very interesting. And again, we'll put a, a link to that on our webpage. And probably just on a, a local note, we're planning here at Jodrell Bank a new visitor facility. Um, and one of the things we're hoping to do is with the building itself, we're hoping to be able to build a building which has uh, embossed into the structure of the building, into the walls of the building, um, patterns that relate to the science that we do here. So, for example, one of the things we're thinking about doing is to emboss into the building the radio sky. So the invisible radio sky, a map of the sky which was created with um, the Lovell Telescope here, the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia, uh, and the Effelsberg Telescope in Germany. And so taking a sort of contour map of that of that radio image and embossing it into the building means that you can actually sort of feel directly uh, where the bright spots are. You feel Cassiopeia A, the star that exploded in 1670 that's very bright in the in the radio sky. Cygnus A, the distant radio galaxy with a supermassive black hole, um, would be would you could feel as well. And also the centre of the uh, the centre of the Milky Way, the black hole at the centre of the Milky Way, as well as the overall ridge of emission that runs along the plane of the Milky Way. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that we'll be able to do that and that we obtain the funding for those buildings, but uh, that will be an interesting thing as and when that, that comes. So thanks very much for that question, Russ, and I hope that's some help to you. The second question this month is from Anthony Bradbury, and he says... Many years ago, one of your staff gave a talk at my then radio club, Telford and District Radio Society, and this member of the Jodrell Bank team was a radio ham, and he can't remember his name. I suspect it may well have been Ian Morrison, our night sky specialist. Anthony writes, I wish to recall the data he showed on the radar received at Jodrell Bank during the time of the landing phase of Apollo 11. Now, uh, what I think uh, we'll do is we'll actually get a, a scan made of the of the data that was picked up here at Jodrell Bank, and we'll put it on on the gallery pages on our website so that everybody can have a look. It's actually visible; it's on display in our visitor centre. Um, what's actually what we actually did was to pick up um, one of the carrier signals being produced by the Eagle Lander, which was being um, sent out at a particular frequency. So we're picking up a radio signal. Uh, it wasn't radar specifically, so we weren't sending out a signal, but we were receiving a radio signal from the Eagle Lander, and we were able to measure its frequency, um, and we were able to see the frequency change as a result of the changing motion between us and the Eagle Lander, so basically a Doppler shift. So as the Lander, in, in effect, moved faster away away from us, or somewhat more slowly away from us, changes in velocity between the two, uh, between ourselves and the Eagle Lander, we were able to see that as changes in the in the frequency and that's a plotted um, what we have as a as a recording of that is a plot of the frequency against time and what you can actually see on that um, you see the the this the uh, trace wiggle up and down quite a lot at the beginning and that's actually just um, some very rapid changes in in frequency and they're being corrected for on the scale so there's some sort of sharp changes that are just corrections to the calibration um, but then the interesting thing is that you start the the thing settles down, but then you see some little wiggles in the trace, and those wiggles are actually the point at which Neil Armstrong had to take manual control of the Eagle Lander because he'd realised that the uh, where it was the computer had been programmed in to land at a certain point, that patch of the moon was actually very rough with many boulders and little craters and things, and he was worried about landing on that point, so he took manual control 
and flew it over the rough ground. And you can actually see the sort of effectively the bumping up and down of the Eagle Lander as he was flying it under manual control in this trace. And then what you see is that the, the trace goes very smooth. And that very smooth change that it changes to is the point where the Eagle Lander has landed on the moon. There's no more sort of bumping up and down as he's flying it over the surface. It's sitting stationary on the moon's surface. And the only change in frequency that we then picked up was the the changing frequency that's just due to the the relative changes um, due to the rotation of the Earth relative to the uh, relative to the position of the lander on the on the Moon and the Moon in its orbit. So it's really quite um, an exciting bit of data, um, but we'll put that on our on our web pages um, for you to have a look at. It's probably also worth um, looking back through some of our archive. Uh, Jodcast for interviews that we've done with Sir Bernard Lovell here in the past, where we where we've talked about the various things that Jodder was involved in, because we weren't actually uh, officially involved in the in the lunar landing story in Apollo Eleven, but we were involved as a formal partner in various missions earlier on in the space race. So even prior to Apollo itself, in the early uh, Project Able missions where the Americans had decided to try and get a rocket to the moon. Um, Jodrell was officially asked to be involved in that in terms of tracking those rockets. And of course, we did some very interesting things relating to the right from the very first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, picking up the rocket that uh, took Sputnik into space by sending out a radar signal and getting an echo back off that rocket, tracking the other ones, Sputnik 2, Laika, the dog, through to picking up the first pictures ever sent from the surface of the moon on on uh, Luna 9 in 1966 that soft landed on the moon, sent back pictures that were intercepted here at Jodrell Bank um, with a, with an early type of fax machine, picking up signals from the first spacecraft ever to enter the atmosphere of another planet um, on the planet Venus. Loads of interesting things back from the, in the archive of uh, Jodrell Bank's activities in space. But I guess, you know, in, in terms of that story culminating in the landing on the moon, and we do have quite an interesting uh, bit of data there that I'll, I'll make available on our on our website. And I think the final question this month is from Audra, Audra Copeland, and she says um, she sends a message asking about a gold-coloured star. She says she lives in Nashua, New Hampshire, and she was out walking one night, one late one evening, ten thirty p.m. March the seventh, and wondered about a, a particular star that she could see in the sky that was a very uh, seemed a very gold colour, quite br- seemed a lot brighter than the than the stars around it. Uh, seemed a lot brighter and a lot larger than the stars around it. Do we know what that was? Well, I'm I got in touch with Audra and checked on whereabouts in this, what direction she was looking in, and, and I'm pretty sure that the star she was talking about was actually a planet, and it was actually the planet Mars, because we've come probably were towards the end of January. We came very close to Mars, at least in the sense that you know as the Earth orbits around the Sun. Mars orbits around the sun farther away from the sun than we are. And because we orbit, we're closer to the sun, we orbit faster. And so we sort of overtake Mars on the inside every couple of years. And as we pass by on the inside, we're as close as we get basically to Mars. So it looks very bright in the sky, um, towards midnight on the opposite side of the sky to the sun. Um, and so the end of January, uh, we were as, as close as we were going to get. We're sort of receding away from Mars again now. Mars will gradually fade. But it was very spectacular. It did look sort of goldy coloured, reddish gold coloured, um, and very bright over to the sort of left of Orion. Um, so yeah, that seemed like certainly was Mars. Of course, the reddish colour comes from the colour of the, all of the rusty sort of sandy soil on, on, on Mars. 
there's a point there about saying it looked a lot brighter. It certainly was brighter than, than most of the stars. You know that these things are planets. Um, historically, um, people would have looked at these things and seen that they wandered around the sky differently than the other stars, not realising what they were. Gave them the name Planetes, which comes from the Greek for wanderer, which is where we get planet from. And we know they wander across the sky now because actually they're going round and round the sun, and so they're moving against the the, the distant background of of the other of the stars. Mentioning that it looks a lot larger than the rest around it, of course, you know, if you look at Mars through a telescope, you might you would be able to see that it was a disk. It wasn't a sort of point source twinkling like the other stars tend to do, um, rather more steady in its brightness and actually looking like a disk, so resolved um, because it's you know much closer to us. You can actually see the see the shape of it. In fact, if you're lucky, even visually at the moment, if it's nice clear night, nice steady atmosphere, you can even see some features on the on the Martian surface, like for example the polar uh, caps looking a bit whiter. So, of course, it doesn't look bigger to the naked eye, really. I think that's just a, an illusion, really, caused by it appearing brighter. So it appears to be sort of, uh, appears larger. Um, in fact, to the naked eye, you wouldn't really be able to see that. Um, it would just be that it would be brighter. But through a telescope, you can indeed see that it's a disk rather than a point-like object. And one of the things that's often pointed out about planets is to look for the fact that they probably don't twinkle like the stars do. So the twinkling is caused by the light passing through the atmosphere and refracting through the atmosphere, and you sort of get uh, little brightenings and fadings due to the sort of turbulence in the atmosphere. And because a planet is actually extended rather than a point, um, the light from the overall uh, from the from the planet's disk is actually passing through sufficient different lines of sight through the atmosphere that those are all sort of averaged out and so you don't get that same twinkling pattern. Okay, that's all the questions we have for this month. So please send in any future questions in the usual way and we'll speak again next month. Thanks for that, Tim. And you can, of course, get in touch with Tim to ask him your questions via the website at jodcast.net. I should probably say that we've had quite a lot of spam recently from the feedback forum. So now if you want to send us mail to just send feedback, you have to enter any presenter's name. So Jen, Dave, Stuart, Neil, I think most of ours work. But to send Tim a question, you have to put Tim's name. You have to put Tim into the box. Right. Uh, we've also had um, emails from listeners complaining that the website is taking quite a while to load. Uh, if you have had this problem... Do please let us know, and uh, if you can, tell us your operating system, your browser, and your location so that we can try and replicate the results and see what's going on. Over on the forum, we've had a bit of feedback about the last show. Rapid Eye said it was a good show and interesting interview. Then there was a little bit of banter about the, the wonderful intro and outro that it. Dave put together. It brings oh, a tear oh, to his eye, I think. It does. I think, if I can speak personally, I, I, it's been my favourite intro-outro um, for a long, long time. What about Milan? <laughs> yes, that was good fun. But <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you'd say that, Dave. Oh, Jen. Anyway. You um, don't so... lose your professional respect for <laughs> <will> me. <laughs> so over on the forum, Earth Unit says, I want to be as clever as Stella. And to which Stella responded to, I want to be as young as Earth Unit. And uh, Joe to the Oak says, great show and I want to be the Doctor. Who, I hear you cry. Oh. And it's not happening, because I'm the Doctor. <laughs> as everybody knows. As has been plugged on the, the Jodcast for the last two issues, I was the Doctor in, um, in Megan's Silver Spiral story. I think we've told listeners about that enough. I... You, you have, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to say it for myself. They might be sick of it. 
Oh, come on. It is a brilliant story. It is. It is. Megan is fantastic. And, and um, Megan has a fan group over on Facebook. <laughs> yes, she does. Uh, so um, do join up to Megan's fan club. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. We will, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also on the, the Jogcast group. Yes. I don't, I don't know how many members there are. I think maybe just the creator. Uh, two or three or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Certainly no more than a handful. And the last little bit of feedback that we've had is about the Jodcast theme. And someone's been trying to locate it. And I have to admit that um, I can't remember what the track was called. I know that it was from a royalty-free CD. Uh, I have tried to find said CD, but unfortunately I think it's with uh, a former employer, um, and uh, that basically means I have no hope of finding <sighs> it ever again. So the hunt is on, but... Also, if anyone wants to do a new Jodcast theme, if you want to re-engineer, remix, or in fact do anything, provide us with a new one, get in touch. We will more than happily listen to any submissions that we get. I'm sure Adam and I suggested doing a heavy metal version and that got shot down as soon as we mentioned it. I I, I didn't say a thing. Probably Stuart. (laughs) Also on, on Twitter, thank you to everyone who retweeted the Night Sky link from March. There were quite a few retweets about that, so thank you. Yes, thank you very much. And if you want to send us any feedback about any of our shows, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can go onto the forum at forum.jodcast.net. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. We're on Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And unfortunately, this brings us to the end of this issue of the Jodcast. Uh, so that means our thanks must go to Robert Dunn for the interview that he gave us and to Ian MacDonald for being our editor for this issue. So, until next time, jot on. Bye, everyone. Bye.